If you've been following the news over the last few years, chances are you've been tracking the latest drama concerning Brexit, the United Kingdom's June 2016 decision to leave the European Union. But Brexit is just one part of the European story, and at times, it's overshadowed other key developments playing out across the continent. On this episode of The Bid, we'll take a Euro trip with Chief Multi-Asset Strategist Isabel Mateo Silago. We'll try to make sense of what's happening now, what's bubbling beneath the surface, and what you should be watching for beyond Brexit. From the BlackRock Investment Institute, I'm your host, Jack Aldrich. We hope you enjoy. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So much going on, particularly with Brexit, so I'd love to start there. March 29th was supposed to be the day that the UK left the European Union, yet that hasn't happened. Why? Every day we're hearing of some new political upheaval. What's going on? Yes, uh, good question. Everybody's trying to answer it here in London as well. So look, what's happened is that Theresa May, the Prime Minister, hasn't managed to get the UK Parliament to approve the withdrawal package that she negotiated and agreed with the European Union. And as a result, it's been necessary to request an extension of that deadline for exiting the EU in order to prevent the chaos of a so-called no-deal Brexit. So there are now basically two scenarios. One scenario is that Theresa May at long last manages to get a parliamentary majority for her deal. That is still looking somewhat unlikely, but a number of members of parliament have been revisiting their position recently, so it's not completely ruled out. If that happens, the UK will leave the European Union on May 22. If, however, there is no such majority in support of Theresa May's deal, then other options will need to be explored, something that the parliament is going to begin to do very shortly with so-called indicative votes. But in almost all of these other scenarios, more time will be needed. And that will mean that by April the 12th, the UK will need then to notify the European Union, that it needs a longer extension and therefore also will need to take part in the European elections. So the situation is still very fluid, full of uncertainty. I would say the one element of clarity that we do have at this stage, though, and that's a very important one, is that the prospect of a no-deal Brexit, which would have been extremely disruptive in economic and market terms, is pretty much off the table. And that is because Theresa May has said formally that she will not allow a no-deal Brexit unless there is a majority in Parliament for it, and we know there is a large majority against it. So we avoid that acute short-term risk, but in the near term, the uncertainty remains very deep. So it's not quite all settled. No, it's not all settled at all. Whatever the scenario, we're going to see a protracted period of uncertainty, and that's likely to weigh on UK assets for the foreseeable future. I'd love to circle back to the European parliamentary elections. Could you explain what those are and what they mean? 
So these are the elections for the European Parliament. This is the only body in the European governance structure that is directly elected by European citizens in the context of national constituencies. So it's a pretty big deal. And the European Parliament is co-legislator together with the European Council, which is comprised of EU heads of state and government. So it has substantial powers, particularly with regard to, well, pretty much all the legislative framework as well as trade relations. Isabel, the results of these elections influence who are Europe's political leaders, correct? Yes, that's absolutely right. In fact, there's an expectation that the leader of the party that has the largest grouping in the European Parliament becomes the head of the European Commission, which is the, well, the European executive, if you will. In fact, one thing that's almost for sure this time around is that it will not happen because a substantial number of heads of state are against this system. So there's going to have to be some kind of a negotiation to determine which country, which party gets to lead the European Commission. And then, of course, whoever gets picked as president of the European Commission will have an impact as well on who will replace Mario Draghi as president of the European Central Mm -hmm. Bank when his mandate expires in October because there's always an expectation that different countries get the different jobs. So, for example, if you were to have Mm -hmm. a German to run the European Commission, then it would be very difficult to have a German run the European Central Bank, vice versa. If you don't get a German to lead the European Commission, then that opens the door to potentially having a German run the European Central Bank, which has never happened before. And so this is an important fallback effect from the European elections. Got it. So these are a big deal. It's a pretty big deal, yeah. And I know that one of the sticking points in Brexit is that if the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union, it would be a little odd to participate in upcoming European elections. Is that the right way to understand it? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, as Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, said in her television address recently, it's been almost three years since the UK voted to leave the European Union and the population probably wouldn't take it very well or wouldn't understand it if they were asked to participate in elections to the European Parliament. On the other hand, and that's the way the European Union sees it, if the UK is going to remain a member for a while longer, and we don't know if it's a short while or a long while or forever, then it would be in violation of the treaties if it did not elect representatives to the European Parliament. Now, obviously, Mm -hmm. it's an involved process, and one can see why the main parties in particular are not excited, neither of them, at the idea of running European elections. On the other hand, it's probably less absurd to do that than to stockpile food and medicine to prepare for no deal. So that's the state of the discussions today. After the UK voted to leave the EU, it was widely feared it would start a domino effect of multiple countries doing the same. I recall the potential monikers circulating. Frexit, Grexit, even Italyve. Where do these fears stand today? No, I think those fears are very much diminished in part because of or thanks to the chaos that the Brexit debates both within the UK and between the UK and the European Union have caused. I think the whole rest of Europe is watching this and thinking, oh my goodness, what a mess they've made and don't want to have it at home. When you look at people's support for membership in the euro or membership in the European Union across the different countries, it is now as high as it's ever been 
mean, it's over 75% of the European population who thinks that membership of their country in the EU is a good thing. Mm -hmm. So how much of that is linked to Brexit versus, you know, simply improvement in the economy or other reasons is obviously hard to say. And the main parties that previously had campaigned on an openly anti-EU platform like the Front National in France or even the Liga in Italy and others have had to tone down very significantly their anti-EU rhetoric. But that being said, there's an open acknowledgement now even by mainstream parties, even by the French president and the head of the government party in Germany, that the status quo is not acceptable. There's a lot of things that need to be improved and fixed in the way the European Union works, yeah. and that's going to be at the center of the campaign <clears throat> for the European Parliament elections, which are getting underway now. I know polls predict a strong showing for, as you mentioned, a lot of the populist parties that are either in power today or very much waiting in the wings and have been using this period of time to ferment local support. Is that right? Does that matter? That's definitely right, that opinion polls are projecting a significant increase in the representation of populist parties, both on the right and on the left of the spectrum. That being said, they're starting from a fairly low level. And so the baseline scenario is still that the mainstream parties between them will remain comfortably with a majority position. I think the key question is, could all the populist parties together reach one third of the seats in which case they would have mm -hmm. substantial blocking power. But having said that, we shouldn't forget that these different populist parties don't agree on most things. They might agree on not liking the way the EU functions today. But in concrete terms, you know, some of them want much more respect for the fiscal rules. Others want to throw them out of the window. They have very different visions in terms of foreign affairs, for example, how to deal with Russia, how to deal with China. So what I think is fair to expect is probably more complicated, more convoluted decision-making going forward after the new parliament is in place, but not necessarily a strong shift in one direction or yeah. the other in terms of policymaking. What I think is so interesting, Isabel, is this notion of populist parties competing with each other is true both across Europe, but also within the different countries, right? So you have in Italy and France, for example, populist parties on both the left and right competing for people's hearts and minds. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And there's a broad agenda of protecting people. But, you know, quite frankly, even Emmanuel Macron in France is campaigning on a slogan of Europe that protects its citizens better. So there are issues on which there will be scope for substantial agreement, for example, better protection of EU borders, for example, overhauling the asylum seekers and refugees policy. But then there are other issues like, you know, what's tends to take on free trade or what do we want to have in the trade agreements that the EU is going to sign with third parties, there will be very significant differences of views there. Mm -hmm. When you think of all that's going on in Europe, there seems to be no shortage of risks. What else is keeping you up at night? Spain's upcoming elections, I know, are in April. There are ongoing budgetary tensions between Italy and the European Union. What's on your list? So really, my biggest concern is how is Europe going to cope with the next recession? You know, if you look at the U.S. and you think, what will the U.S. do when the next recession approaches, you can be pretty sure that the Federal Reserve will take decisive steps, you know, cut interest rates, for example, to try and support growth. And quite possibly you would get Congress to approve some fiscal stimulus. In Europe, 
you can pretty much rule out both of these. In terms of the central bank, there's no space to cut interest rates. And we now know the ECB has promised to keep rates at negative 0.4 until at least the end of the year. It's very politically constrained to restart its quantitative easing program, its asset purchase program. So there's very little room for maneuver on the monetary policy mm-hmm. side. And then on the fiscal side, different member states have very different views as to what needs to be done. And generally speaking, the countries that do have fiscal space, like Germany and the Netherlands, don't want to use it. Whereas those who most want and need to use it, like Italy and other periphery countries, don't have the space and wouldn't be allowed most likely by existing rules to use it. So that will be the conundrum. And at that point, it's quite possible that markets, again, would really worry about the sustainability of the debt of a number of the periphery countries. And you would see a bit of a vicious cycle between market conditions and growth conditions getting worse and worse and worse until you get some kind of a policy response. But that may come pretty late in the game. So, you know, in the medium term, that's my main worry. In the short term, there's, of course, the issue of the threat of tariffs on EU car exports to the United States, which keeps coming up every now and then in the U.S. president's Twitter feed. That would deal a big blow in terms of economic confidence in the EU, and we would almost certainly see an immediate retaliation from Europe, which would cause a lot of collateral damage as well. Got it. So it really looks like you're looking ahead to the next downturn and fearing how that might turn out. Do you think the trigger for that would have to be economic or could it be political? No, I don't see political events. I mean, apart from that, it would have to be an economic driver to see a recession in Europe. And frankly, I don't see this as being around the corner. If anything, now the base case is more stabilization or even a reacceleration in the wake of the same thing happening in China. But if you look at, you know, the next 18 months to two years where, you know, the the risk of a recession striking in the U.S. increases and then it's hard to see how Europe would decouple from that. So I see this as more an economic risk that would get magnified by the lack of an adequate policy reaction than an inherently political risk. Yeah. On the subject of tariffs, it's interesting because so many of the headlines recently have been around the United States and China. It seems like this is a big deal for Europe, though. Are we paying enough attention? Yeah, so in our view, actually, it's quite clear that market attention to global trade tensions has been almost entirely driven by developments in the U.S.-China relationship. And so in the indicators we use to track market sentiment and market concern around this topic, what we see is a sharp decline in concern since basically last fall. And that's probably justified when it comes to U.S.-China, although we don't expect a permanent truce. We do expect some kind of agreement to be found there. But more importantly, there are other trade issues out there that are largely unresolved. And one of them is the new NAFTA that looks difficult for it to get through Congress. People have forgotten about that. And the other one Mm -hmm. is these trade talks between the US and Europe, which were supposed to get underway last July after the meeting between President Trump and President Juncker. And these are not going particularly well. In fact, both sides can't even agree what to talk about. The US wants to talk about agriculture, Europe is saying absolutely not. We will only talk about industrial goods. 
And President Trump has spoken on many occasions of what he perceives as being a very tough stance from Europe. He's accused Europe of being even tougher than China. And clearly, from his standpoint, using the threat of tariffs as you go into a negotiation strengthens your hands. Certainly, that would suggest to be the experience from the trade talks between the US and China. And so the president now has in his hands a report on the so-called Section 232, which would allow him to declare EU car imports a threat to national security. Now, one may agree or disagree with that judgment, but it would give him a legal basis to impose tariffs of as much as 25% on European car imports. And that's a very significant chunk of the European economy, particularly for Germany, but also through supply chain effects, frankly, for the entire European economy. So that's something Mm -hmm. that really markets should be more worried about and that has been very much out of the headlines and that's for us a meaningful downside risk. And I think another thing that's been out of the headlines, and we've talked about being one of the the under-the-surface issues between the U.S., China, and Europe, has been this issue of technology. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, so that's another complication. Well beyond trade, the tensions between the U.S. and China are now focusing on technological rivalry uh, for things like 5G networks, artificial intelligence. Europe, frankly, is at risk of being left behind and having to choose sides in terms of providers between the U.S. and China. And right now, a number of European countries are looking at their options and feeling very uncomfortable comfortable towing the line that the U.S. would like them to, which is to ban Chinese equipment providers. So that's another source of irritation or tension, if you will, between the U.S. and a number of European countries who have said, well, I don't really care what the U.S. says. I'm going to allow Chinese companies to provide some of our advanced telecoms equipment. And this doesn't seem like an issue that will be resolving itself anytime soon. No, indeed. So with all of this said, Isabel, should investors steer clear of Europe for the moment, or are you seeing opportunities? Well, there's always opportunities. You know, there's a bunch of very good companies in Europe that are internationally oriented and that benefit from a relatively weak euro right now. And we do not expect the euro to strengthen significantly anytime soon. Having said that, when you look at the return expectations that you can hope for from European markets compared to the risks, and these are primarily downside risks at this stage, Europe doesn't look very attractive compared to, in particular, regions like the United States or emerging markets. So this doesn't mean to say, you know, remove any European assets from your portfolios, but we definitely Mm -hmm. advocate an underweight stance to European equities. We do see opportunities in European credit, where the very dovish posture of the central bank combined with an okay-ish growth outlook means there are opportunities. Isabel, we always end our episodes with a rapid-fire round of questions that are a bit more personal. Okay. The first is, we talked a little bit about technology, and I know you're a tech watcher. 5G, artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, which of these buzzwords are you most excited about? Uh, Look, I think the exciting part is the combination of all of them. I mean, frankly, AI combined with 5G and you get the Internet of Things, you get autonomous vehicles, you get all sorts of really exciting as well as frightening developments because I think all of us human beings are going to be able to focus on more value-adding activities and maybe have a lot more free time to spend on, you know, listening to podcasts. (laughs) And 
Isabel, I know you're on the road quite a lot. Do you have a favorite tech device that you can't live without? My phone. <laughs> my phone and my <laughs> my phone and my AirPods, but we don't want to do yeah. advertising here. Switching gears, you, before working at BlackRock, spent 15 years at the International Monetary Fund, which I think is very cool. What's one of your best memories of that experience? Well, in 2007, after a couple of years of intense and very difficult negotiations, we managed to overhaul a decision that had been in place since 1977, so a 30-year-old decision on how the International Monetary Fund should enforce surveillance of exchange rate policies over its members. In other words, how we would prevent countries from manipulating their exchange rates. So we accomplished this modernization. It was very hard because the different member countries had very, very different views on what to do. And it was a great moment of happiness once we reached agreement of the executive board to endorse this new framework. And then that lasted about a week and it turned into a big disaster because it turned out that one of the largest member countries really couldn't live with it. And then the IMF spent the next three to four years undoing it. I know you've had a very international career and have lived in the U.S., the U.K., and France, in addition to some I'm sure I'm not even aware of or forgetting. How many languages do you speak? I speak uh, five languages, but to differing degrees. Which ones? So English, U.K. English, American English, French, uh, Spanish, German, and Russian. Great. Well, Isabel, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Jack. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. Investment involves risk, including possible loss of principal. The principal value is not guaranteed at any time, including at the target date. This material is not an offer to sell or an invitation to apply for any particular product or service. In the U.S., this material is intended for public distribution. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners. The principal value is not guaranteed at any time, including at the target date. 
This material is not an offer to sell or an invitation to apply for any particular product or service.